we become very, very efficient as a, as a, as a group of making plastic very cheap. <clears throat> so it is disposable. But that doesn't recognize the true cost of, of uh, yeah. drilling and refining and all the stuff that goes into creating the products in the first place. Or so. the, the back end of it, what happens yeah. after you dispose of it. I think that's where this like punch in the gut for me comes is the awareness of, okay, if I'm buying something for 15 cents or a dollar, really the impact long-term is a lifetime. Hey guys, it's Mandy with Global Hemp Association. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining. I'm excited about the opportunity to build a relationship and connect this supply chain. I mean, after all, that's why we started the association. Our association was built on the foundation of connecting supply chain, building relationships, and helping you grow your business. Anyone from farmers, manufacturers, and distributors, people that are passionate about the supply chain, and those creating products selling into biofuels, plastics, textiles, construction, and building materials. Hello, hello, we're live. Hey, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thank you. I always laugh and crack up for anybody that's watched those intro videos. You just see the progression throughout last year and the background changes and all the people we've interviewed. And I just want to give a quick thank you to everybody that's participated and joined. We've got hundreds of interviews published and tons of of data and connections that have been made. And so thank you so much for everybody that's, that's joined so far. And I'm excited about interview today, our interview today and making this connection. Jason's doing great things and has a great, great background really making uh, moves here in the industry. So before I get to talking too much, uh, I want to remind everybody, log on to our website under our events tab. You'll see all of our upcoming interviews, meetings. We had a fabulous meeting yesterday with Pan Exchange Group talking about the state of the industry for fiber, grain, and cannabinoids. And then also, um, we've got a great interview tomorrow morning, same time, 10 a.m. Make sure you set your reminder on LinkedIn or YouTube so that you get notified when we go live. But interviewing Wade Atterbury out of California, talking about some of the opportunities that they've been able to create around the building industry or sector. And so, Jason, before I go on too much, you want to give us a quick summed up fast background in a couple minutes about who you are and how'd you get into this industry? Sure, (laughs) sure. Well, I'd I'd be happy to. So I'm Jason Finnis. I'm the uh, chief innovation officer. I'm the co-founder as well of Bass Fiber Technologies. And Bass Fiber Tech is a uh, a specialty um, manufacturer of uh, natural fibers for the global non-woven industry. So the non-woven industry is really large. Uh, we have taken a piece of that as our focus, being in the single-use products, uh, things like uh, wipes, disinfecting wipes, cleaning cloths, things like that, uh, items that are typically used once to clean a surface and then discarded. And so that's an industry that's heavily reliant on plastic, and our, our purpose has been to replace as much of that plastic as possible with hemp or and other bast crops like flax or jute um, that, that lend themselves really well, actually, to this, to this industry. Impressive. So what what got you? What was your aha moment to say hemp is potentially a solution to fit into this sector? Well, that happened a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I've been an entrepreneur in the industry now for about 30 years. Okay. Um, I started my first hemp company back in 1994. <clears throat> so I guess I'm just coming up to 30 years. And yeah, I was <laughs> in university. So basically, yeah. you know, I had wanted to start a business for a long time. And, and my Girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife and has been a partner with me in in the businesses uh, since that day, showed me an article in a magazine about hemp paper, and I thought, well, that just makes too much sense. Why aren't we doing this? 
And so, but I had no money. I didn't have enough money to go out and re, re, uh, uh, reorganize and change the pulp and paper industry. I had $300 Canadian. So I started in a 1967 Volkswagen bus um, selling anything you could make out of industrial hemp. So from paper to clothing to seeds to you name it, they were yeah. on my booth. And it was that um, entry into the market that kind of got me uh, with the idea that, you know, hemp fabric, people are interested in it. When they'd come by my booth, they always wanted to buy them, but they were way too expensive because they had mm -hmm. gone through like four or five different distributors before I got them. So I, I organized myself and I, I started to import some uh, fabric from uh, China and started to make these, uh, make garments and things with uh, home sewers in Vancouver, Canada, where I was living. And uh, yeah, so basically I filled my, my Volkswagen bus with t-shirts and I went around to every business that I could and started to sell them. And it was quite a chore because hemp fabric back in those days was pretty itchy and scratchy. So you had to be a true environmentalist <clears throat> to actually want to buy these and wear them. So uh, it was those early days in textiles that got me focused on the fiber and realizing that if we wanted to make this into a large business, <clears throat> we were going to have to focus on the fiber, make it soft, make it better, make it able to spin on commercial equipment. And so that's kind of what got me going down this path. But that was that was in the early 2000s. So yeah, um, back in those days, I started working with the National Research Council of Canada, and we started uh, working out processes for cleaning uh, bast fibers because you can you can do a good job mechanically, and you can get uh, fibers processed to a point where they can spin uh, into coarse yarns for denim and for outerwear and things like that. But we had always had our focus going a little bit. Um, finer than that, going into t-shirts and shirts and things like that. So we started conducting growing trials in Canada, the US, and in Europe. Um, we took the company public <clears throat> and were public for about 15 years. And during that time, I had quite an education. I, I did everything from farmer field days, um, working with farmers all over the world to grow and you know work out the agronomics of these crops, what makes a good, uh, um, what makes a good fiber. <clears throat> and uh, then I, I installed uh, three or four different fiber refining lines, two of them in the U.S., one in Europe, um, and operated a wet processing facility in Belgium for a long time where we were supplying uh, a significant amount of fiber uh, into the textile industry. Uh, IKEA was our big customer at that point, uh, Georgia Pacific on non-wovens. And so, yeah, basically I've just had a 30-year education in hemp fiber and how do you do this? And uh, when I teamed up with the, the current group here at Bass Fiber Tech, we started this company in 2016. And what we recognized was this non-woven industry is dominated by plastic and plastic is everywhere. So we're not just talking about landfills. These are, these are products like baby wipes and, and uh, hygiene products that get flushed when they shouldn't um, or end up in landfills and they shed microplastics like crazy. So these, uh, the opportunity here for a natural fiber to come in and start to remove plastic from brands' supply chains was pretty compelling. And so that's, that's how this company started. And it's, it's been going pretty well. Okay, so I've, I've got tons of questions just off of what you said, wow. but I kind of want to talk about I, what does opportunity look like for non-wovens, right? You know, what does supply look like? What's current market look like? What is the demand, you know, of these products? And 
I feel like when I say textiles, it's such a broad term. Nonwovens is pretty broad. What are some of those, you know, key few products that are really looking to take the industry or to really launch the industry? You know, yeah. For sure. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and textiles is a broad category as is non-woven. So non-wovens are, are so, so when you have a spun yarn or a textile, fibers are put together into a yarn and then that yarn turns into a knit or a woven or into geotextiles or something like that. When you have a non-woven, there's a number of ways that you can entangle fibers. And so these are fibers that are not spun, but they've been entangled. Um, so they've been laid on, on top of each other in a mat and then they are bound together sometimes with needles in a needle punch. Sometimes okay. they're done with high pressure water jets in a spun lace system. Uh, and then there's a number of other uh, platforms as well. <clears throat> but non-wovens can go in anything from the insulation behind your walls, like the hemp insulation guys are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it can also go right into um, bedding, into mattresses. But the, the categories that we look at are the single use. So these, these products everybody's familiar with, baby wipes, mm -hmm. disinfecting wipes, masks, um, mm -hmm. surface cleaning wipes that would be used in restaurants <clears throat> or in uh, janitorial services, um, cosmetic makeup remover pads, uh, Q-tip type pads, um, feminine hygiene products. These are the markets that we're in. And yeah. that market is massive. Um, those That market for uh, those non-wovens is, and I've written it down just to make sure I got it right, um, is about 15 million tons of fiber every year. Wow. And as that breaks down uh, into the various fibers that are used, you have about eight and a half million tons of polyester and polypropylene being used in single-use disposable items. So you, you can recognize the, the opportunity here because every time we go to the grocery store, especially with COVID, you know, we take a, a, a wipe, we disinfect the handle, we disinfect our hands, we chuck it away. <clears throat> That well, point. like you said, how much of it's being flushed down the toilet or improperly disposed of, uh, right? That's, that's a huge problem. And it, it plugs sewers around the world. Yeah. Uh, causes billions of dollars in municipal problems to clean up the sewer systems. Um, but with, with COVID, uh, the use of these wipes increased significantly. And <clears throat> most consumers aren't aware that it's, you know, it's the same as using a plastic bag. And everybody now is getting rid of plastic bags. We're getting rid of straws. But um, these wipes are pervasive. They're everywhere. And uh, there's an opportunity here to get rid of the plastic. <clears throat> and it's an, feel free to cut me off anytime because I'm, I'm a bit no, like a, a, a winder in the back. I'll just keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> what, what's interesting is that consumers for a long time have recognized that single-use plastics are so, probably not something we should be using. Um, brands have started to, to adopt that change and go, yeah, you know what, we should probably remove this. And many of them are signing on to plastic treaties to eliminate it. Um, but one of the one of the real kickers has been the single use plastic directive that has come out of Europe. <clears throat> and the single use plastic directive is a mechanism, a legislate, legislative mechanism to force companies to switch away from plastic and single use products, going so far as to have to place a dead turtle logo on products that contain plastic in a single-use uh, application. So like all of our plastic bottles, I, I, I'll i be honest, some of those wipes don't feel like plastic. Some of our clothes, you wouldn't know were made out of plastic unless you really yeah. dove into it. And so it's kind of deceiving, you know, and it's almost frustrating for me to think, man, I'm rubbing my face with 
toxic chemicals where we've got other solutions like yeah. from our natural fibers that are healthier all the way around, right? And part of this paradigm shift from the the lack of awareness or the lack of, for me, lack of awareness on that actual cost of what we're purchasing long-term, yeah. not just at the register. And the, the true cost. <clears throat> yeah. Because we've become very, very efficient as a, as a, as a group of making plastic very cheap. <clears throat> so it is disposable. But that doesn't recognize the true cost of, of uh, drilling and refining and all the stuff that goes into creating the products in the first place. Or so. the, the back end of it, what happens yeah. after you dispose of it. I think that's where this like punch in the gut for me comes is the awareness of, okay, if I'm buying something for 15 cents mm -hmm. or a dollar, really the impact long-term is a lifetime for our water systems or our. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you hit on something there with the end of life because the plastic issue is not something we can recycle our way out of. <clears throat> if you look at the statistics around the world, very little of the plastic that is produced is actually recycled. So we've taken the position of becoming an upstream supplier uh, and designing plastic out uh, in the first place. So <clears throat> the products that we make are obviously made from plant fiber. They're 100% natural. They're compostable. We've got all the eco certifications. So as companies are starting to integrate, and I've got some examples to show you in, uh, at some point today, um, the market is responding really well. So you've got a massive opportunity in volume. You've got a customer group that is demanding these types of products. And now you've got a company like Fast Fiber Tech, which has actually taken the time to learn how to purify and prepare these fibers because the standards that the non-woven industry work on are exact. They are, a lot of these products um, are considered medical devices, like uh, for feminine hygiene and some of the medical applications. So we have got to make sure our ducks are in a row. If we're going to be supplying fiber into that industry, we have to make sure it's perfect. And that's, uh, that's where we spent probably the first six years of our company's life was in the lab, <clears throat> perfecting our processes. Can you speak to that a little bit about where industry is now, even in the United States and compared to say other countries? And then also what do those standards or specs look like? If we've got a yeah. farmer who's interested in really expanding market and getting into it, I think some awareness downstream on the supply chain to quality of fiber that you actually need in order to enter these markets. Absolutely. So <clears throat> when you look at the non-woven supply chain, if we put the consumer on the far right, like you and me on the far right, the farmers on the far left, Bass Fiber Tech is kind of in the middle. <clears throat> so we work after the decorticators and before the non-woven fabric converters. So our role is to work very closely with the decorticators and the farmers to ensure that you know, a fiber variety crop is being grown, that the agronomics of that crop are um, you know, such that it's going to produce a very high quality fiber because quality does start in the field. <clears throat> so if you do it wrong there, you're never going to have a baby wipe out of the, out of the material. Um, then we work with the decorticators to ensure that the uh, fiber is coming out clean enough, that the fiber length is, is correct, and I can get to the specs in a sec. Um, but we, as a, as a company, we have a footprint in both Europe and in the United States. So our company, uh, uh, purchased a, a, uh, our first commercial processing facility just outside of Dusseldorf <clears throat> at the end of 2021. Mm. And we have about a 2,500 ton per year capacity in that facility. So what we're doing there is we're bringing in fiber from the decorticators and we're upgrading it. 
So we use you know, typical cotton bleaching type equipment, but we have a very specific recipe that we use to clean the fibers. The supply chain in Europe is pretty well established and has been for a long time. We started 2022 with the purchase of Lumberton Cellulose in North Carolina. Hmm. That's a much bigger facility. It has about a, I would say probably 10 to 12,000 ton capacity. And right now we're producing a lot of cotton out of it, purified cotton for the non-woven hmm. industry. And the supply chain in the US is, is getting going. <clears throat> so we work very closely and, and Guy Prevost, who's our head of uh, supply chain, works very closely with the farmers and with the decorticators down there to ensure that we're, we're things are happening the right way so we, we take an active role um, once we have cleaned and purified the fiber we ship a bale which is 220 or 250 kilograms <clears throat> looks like a bale of cotton or a bale of polyester or lyocell we ship it to the non-woven converters who then turn it into fabric then it goes from there to the converters who turn the fabric into products and from there it goes to the brands who put them on the shelves are you guys seeking a specific sewing density or uh, genetic itself? Yeah, what? Yeah. Okay, so there's a few things we look at. <clears throat> and the, the way that you should classify these crops is, you know, you've got single purpose fiber, you've got dual purpose, whether that's CBD or, or seed, and then you've got like oil seed, the vanillas. <clears throat> the crops that we like the best are single use or a CBD cross. Um, so you can harvest the CBD as well, but not in a typical way. Um, a lot of CBD has been grown in an, what you'd call an orchard style where they have, mm -hmm. I think they call them six foot centers. So the, the plants are spaced really wide. They get very bushy. That's not good, very good for fiber. Um, when we're growing a fiber crop, we want to see the seeding density of around 300 seeds per meter squared. And I'm afraid you'll have to figure that one out on pounds per acre because I'm afraid I don't have that in my head. Um, you know what? I have a I have a hard time even saying pounds per acre or pounds per meter squared because yeah. it you know the seeds are they vary so drastically in size and how many you get. So I really like the seed count to understand you know what it, what's our objective as far as density yeah. or size of stock. Well, and that's that's the thing. So a, a tight seeding density is going to crowd the plants. <clears throat> it's going to force them to shoot up straight like the size of a pen. Uh, rather than something really big. Um, it's going to keep the internodal space low because these plants are going to grow tall before they start to branch out. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it can keep the fibers finer. <clears throat> so when, when we're talking about fiber, whether we're talking about it going into a textile or into a non-woven, ultimate quality can come down to a couple of factors. And one of the main factors is the micron. And so the micron of the fiber is the diameter. Mm -hmm. And the, the bigger the plant, the bushier and the beefier it is, the higher the micron is going to be. And high micron fibers turn into rough, scratchy products. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they might be great for an upper on a, on, a, on a footwear application, but they're certainly not something you're going to want to wipe a baby with. So we like to see our microns as low as possible. Um, to give you some real world examples, cotton typically has a micron of around 20 and hemp you know, a properly grown hemp is going to be in around the 25. We've seen some with finer counts than um, uh, than cotton. And those are the varieties that we're starting to work with through growing trials in the U.S. and trying to get ourselves to have a, a finer fiber. That's one really important thing. But the, the for the farmer, we need to make sure that the plants that are being grown have a fiber per stem yield 
that is sufficient. There's, it's great to grow a crop that has tight spacing and, and it looks beautiful, but if only it has 15% fiber per stem, then you're going to have a lot of waste. You're going to have a lot of herd, you're going to have a lot of dust, uh, and not a lot of bast fiber. So varieties that are grown in Europe can have uh, over 30% fiber per stem. And that is a major difference uh, for, for a farmer. So that's, that's where we're looking right now um, in the U.S. is to find varieties that have fine microns, high fiber per stem. Um, we're evaluating the harvest time in relation to fiber quality um, because it's, there is a plateau of fiber quality at a certain harvest point where the fiber percentage is as high as it's going to be and the fiber quality is as good. And if you can cut it then, you're going to have a very high quality fiber. Um, and that will depend on the number of hours of sunlight and all sorts of different metrics. But that's what we're trying to quantify right now. Okay, so you answered so many questions. I was going to ask, what we're really looking at through our fiber variety trials are some of the things you're talking about, right? Is like, what is that tipping point for harvest when you get best quality fiber compared to herd? Or if you're harvesting for herd, right? Understanding when you've got the most in your, in your stock compared to a fiber quality, just depending on yeah, what farmers are, are going for or what processors right now are looking at. Um, what about redding? Yeah, redding is important, <clears throat> um, and I wish it was less important, but right now it's still important. Redding is a, uh, it's important for the decorticators for one. Um, there is a relation between redding and fiber quality. Mm -hmm. um, you can still get a very fine micron fiber out of a yellow or unredded straw, um, but you tend to have a more brittle fiber. Um, you've got one that's harder to clean in a decortication facility because that's one of the big things with redding is it starts to detach the herd from the fiber. Mm -hmm. And if you don't go through redding, <clears throat> then you have to add more mechanical energy in decortication and that results in shorter fibers. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful with that. Um, we are working very hard on um, producing fibers from yellow straw, finding out what's the right application because non-wovens, like I said earlier, is a huge market. Uh, if a yellow straw is not good for a baby wipe, maybe it's good for a floor mop or for, uh, you know, some sort of surface in an automobile or something like that. Um, so, yeah, so we're working on that. But right now, redding is important. So it's kind of taking Canada out of the loop. Um, there's some areas I know Canadian Rockies are doing a pretty good job of redding their fiber, but it's kind of happening in a microclimate zone. So that's why... Uh, our facility in Lumberton, North Carolina is pretty well uh, situated because you can definitely wreck fiber in that part of the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The moisture makes a big difference on sure it. Um, okay, so what about origin of genetics? When you'd mentioned earlier, you've got some genetics that you're seeing good micron size on. Yep. Can you give me an idea of where, where are those genetics coming from or what, what specific should maybe the U.S. be playing with for st stabilizing some of those genetics. Yeah, and gen genetics is not my, I, I know a fair amount about it, but it's not my area of expertise. Right. I know that, that we're working with uh, uh, seed genetic uh, geneticists in the US who are planting varieties that they've sourced from various places around the world. Um, some that I believe were, were hot uh, previously mm -hmm. that they've been able to, to calm down, <laughs> cool down a little bit. Um, the, the, Fiber varieties that come out of China are obviously pretty good because they've had a textile uh, industry on hemp for many, many, many years. 
um, and some of the European varieties. So I think what's going to end up happening is we're going to get a direction uh, to say, okay, this type of seed is working well, <clears throat> but it's not perfectly suited for the climate. So we're going to have to do some work to uh, selectively breed and to upgrade these for, for specific areas in the U.S. Yes. Absolutely. Well, and like I said, it's, you know, that that basic piece of building the supply chain that really is still kind of in question, not to mention you throw in Mother Nature on top of it, <laughs> and it just becomes a little risky. <laughs> and that's the big problem. Uh, that's one of the, I've grown thousands of, of acres of these crops around the world. And as soon as you tell a farmer that they are, that the amount of money they make is going to be dependent on Mother Nature, a factor they cannot control. Mm -hmm you know, you've got a big problem. Um, and that's, that's a, and you, you have to counteract that by paying a little bit more to take, to compensate for the risk. So it's, it is a definite uh, focus of ours to work with lightly redded or unredded fiber. Currently we can't do it, but we're working towards it. Okay. Awesome. Talk to me about length. We talked about, you'd mentioned like wet spinning compared to a lot of the spinning that's here in the U S and yeah. stable length of the fiber. Um, can you kind of talk about the difference and what's ideal for for your applications that you're going yeah. after? So the non-woven industry, um, depending on the platform you're using, we typically work with spun lace, which is what you'd see a baby wipe made from, or a needle punch, which would be uh, a makeup pad or the in, inner parts of a diaper. They they typically like fibers that are you know 25 to 40 millimeters long. Uh -huh. um, and we're able to supply that, um, mm -hmm. but we have to be aware that during our process, which is a two-stage process, we have a very uh, comprehensive wet chemistry, and then mm -hmm. we have a dry process as well, which is individualizing, cleaning, and doing all that. There's a fiber length reduction. So we have to make sure that the fiber length we start with allows us to break it a little bit during our process and still supply the non-woven converters with what they want. So um, depending on the facility, um, we're looking at a starting material in around the 40 to 50 millimeter range. Mm -hmm. Even a little bit shorter is okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but from a technical perspective, we're looking for uh, the lowest trash content that we can, which um, usually the fiber we're buying out of Europe is around one or 2% herd. And that's what we'd like to see in the US. Um, and a, a, redded, a redded straw or a redded fiber. Um, you know, I, I see this a lot. I'm curious about color. When we talk to the auto industry, color and mold are huge pieces that will uh, keep hemp from moving into market. Where, what's your, yeah, what's your perspective there? And I asked this specifically around redding. We get some people in the textile industry that want a dark or almost black redded material and others that don't know that that isn't as important to them. And so, yeah, what's your opinion okay, there? Well Redding degree, yeah. So obviously we start with something that's yellow. The more redded it gets, it turns dark dark brown. And if it gets over-redded, it's typically black. Mm -hmm. That's going to be pretty important for textiles um, because they're going to blend it with cotton and it's going to color things. Bleach. They don't use a, a wet process before they uh, start to spin it. It's right. important for textiles, but it's absolutely critical for non-wovens. Um, that's been, so, you know, I'm talking about the opportunity in non-wovens and somebody out there is probably going, well, if it's so great, why isn't it already being used? And the reason it's not being used is for the exact reason. <clears throat> Hemp fiber in the past has been dirty, uh, inconsistent, and difficult to process. So when a non-woven converter that's used to a, a staple fiber like polyester or viscose, mm -hmm. fibers that are perfect, every single one of them, 
-hmm. they move to a fiber that looks like, you know, something out of a decorticator, you might feed a cow um, mm -hmm. and certainly not wipe a baby with, they just don't know what to do with it. So our focus has been to upgrade that. And part of that upgrading is to homogenize the color, homogenize mm -hmm. the micron and mm -hmm. eliminate microbes. So microbes in a, in a textile, that's important. Or in, in automotive, mm -hmm. that's important. But if you're making uh, fibers that are going into feminine hygiene or into mm -hmm. baby care, microbes are a kiss of death. Yes. So we have got um, very stringent material handling requirements in our facilities to make sure that there's no cross-contamination because these are fibers coming in off a of farmer's field. Yeah. Fertilized with manure. They've redded and laid in the field. Mm -hmm. They're covered in microbes. So we have got to be very, very careful in our process that we eliminate them, meet the uh, specifications of the non-woven converter, and don't do anything in our process to you know, cross-contaminate. Okay, so. this is kind of a random question, but somebody brought it up again. Um, I understand that China legalized or really got behind hemp production because the antimicrobial factor that it potentially had for some of their materials. Now, looking into it, my understanding is through the processing and different chemical applications that may need to be used, that antimicrobial factor may not really be there. Can okay, yeah? Can you speak to that a little bit? Because that's that's my understanding. It's, I feel like it's a myth that's been. It's a myth. That's, yeah, exactly. And you know what? I started thirty years ago, and I I started with Jack Harrow's book, and I was I read The Emperor Wears No Clothes, and I was a hemp zealot. I was on my soapbox, and I was repeating all this stuff. Um, <laughs> That's that was my life back then, but you know, as as we you know do the research because it has to be data driven. Um, yes. All of these claims, we don't see that supported in the yeah. data. So uh, these fibers host microbes very very well. Uh -huh. um, anything that has lignin or pectin still on it, that's a food source. Um, if these uh, fibers are being coated in a a bio based finish, um, that's fatty acid. That's food for microbes. Um, we have not seen that be true. We have to work very, very hard to keep them from growing microbes. Yes, exactly. Okay, so I'm glad to just kind of hammer that out. It was a question we had. There's a couple of questions that have come in. I want to say thanks again for everybody that's joining. Keep your questions coming. Coming. I love hearing where you're from all over the world. It's great to see you guys chiming in. Uh, Bill had a question. To be competitive, what's the price target per ton for fiber into the wipes market? What are our farmers looking at? On on. So the question is on on the fiber going into our process or the fiber going into the wipes market because that's. I would say if you can answer both, or if you can kind of give an idea of what it looks like from farm to your process, and then from your process into the the manufacturing of the yeah wipe itself. I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to give too much direction right now on price from the farm because that's still being worked out in the U.S. Sure. Uh, we're not we're not 100 sure where that's going to land um, yeah. when we sell our fibers into the non-woven market um, we need to be as competitive as possible and understanding you know this is a new product uh, even though we have about 15,000 tons of capacity you know that's a drop in the bucket when i'm talking about 8.1 million tons of fiber uh, that we would like to replace we're, we're small so um, there's different levels of fiber uh, there's polyester at the very bottom which is a pretty cheap fiber. Then there's the viscose and then lyocell, like made by lensing, and then there's bleached cotton. So where we fall is between lensing and bleached cotton. So uh, it's hard to hard to say a price and what, what does that even mean, but 
um, we're not the most expensive out there and we're not the least expensive. And mm -hmm. as we continue to grow our company, um, we, we were fortunate enough to bring on a, a pretty major investment last year from Alstom uh, Capital in awesome. Finland. And those guys uh, are giving us the horsepower we need to expand our capacity. So we right now, as I say, about 15,000 tons. We are now ordering the equipment to grow that into uh, 45 or 50,000 tons of capacity. And with each step change in capacity that we have, we're able to reduce our prices. We get more efficient. Um, you know, everything becomes more efficient. So we're a, a, a niche at the moment uh, in a big niche, but and will become more competitive over time. Um, before we go into another question, you kind of brought up this. I'm interested in the adoption from the consumers also. You know, what challenges are we seeing or how is that going? Um, yeah, like I, said, I was so disconnected from where plastics or the textile industry played a role in our pollution. Yeah. Well, you know, most most people are. That's uh, mm -hmm. Most people don't realize where these plastics are hidden. They're in plain sight and they're hidden. Yeah. Um, the adoption by the market is is pretty strong. Uh, consumers are looking for these types of products, and I think you could you could break the consumer groups into two chunks. One, you've got the early adapters, the low-cost consumer, as they're called, the lifestyles of health and sustainability. These are the people that buy based on their conscience. They want to buy products that fit their market. Uh, you know, people are buying seventh generation. They're buying Toms of Maine. They're buying uh, Burt's Bees. These are the types of products that would fit in that category. Um, they are willing to pay a little bit more. And then you have the companies that are uh, more mass market. These are the companies that are moving towards sustainability. Um, you know, they're at Costco, they're at um, maybe not Walmart, but they're, they're certainly moving in the right direction. Um, and, and those consumers are also pushing for these, these types of products. So what we're, what we're finding is two different groups. Some are wanting very high concentrations of hemp in the wipes. And some are more satisfied with 30 or 40 percent uh, to get them started. Um, but the reaction from brands is really, really strong. Now, we're a fiber supplier, so we don't make wipes and we don't make fabric. All we do is sell containers of fiber. But despite that, we are contacted daily by brands looking for us to help them create a product to go in their stores. And, uh, you know, that that push pull has been so strong that we've actually taken it under, you know, as, as an initiative. And we've actually started to create products, things like uh, surface cleaning wipes that are dry yeah. surface cleaning wipes, 100% hemp, fully compostable. Um, we have these, which are uh, makeup pad removers. These are uh, a commercial product in Europe, which yes. uh, are fully compostable, uh, wet wipes, things like that, that are, yeah, in a plastic container, but we're working on that. Uh, <laughs> and even uh, things like Q-tips. Okay. Uh, or I guess earbuds. It's not Q-tips. How do we get? How do we get a? How do we get a hold of those? How do? How do consumers order them? Or well, right now, there's to sell them potentially. Well, okay, that's a good question. <laughs> um, no, so the first question for consumers: these are going to hit the shelves in the U.S. this year. You're going to start to see consumer products containing our fiber uh, soon. Uh, in Europe, they're already available. So there's there's companies out there already selling them into retail stores um, in various countries within Europe. Um, but what we are able to do, if there's a if there's a company out there that is interested in putting you know wet wipes 
on their shelf in their store, or they have some natural product stores. They're a CBD company that wants to make, you know, cosmetic face masks with CBD on them. Just come to me. We have the, and no, no exaggeration, we can snap our fingers and have that product created for you now. Um, with, and we've, we're working with some very large uh, American converters Mm-hmm. And we've negotiated lower uh, minimum order quantities or the MOQs so that we can get this out there and start getting it into the market because there's a large group of consumers that want it. So for business owners out there, we're ready to go, whether it's from feminine hygiene products to wet wipes to mops or anything like that. We have the ability to uh, get those things converted for you. I love this because these are all things that in every household they belong. They're they're items that all of us are using on a regular basis. It isn't this, you know, and don't get me wrong. I think that the building industry is is really going to make a big impact, but it is a different market of who they're servicing. You know, the top 1% of people building homes compared to everybody needs hygiene products. Everybody's using Yes, clearly. Everybody does. And so, you know, what we're doing, because sustainability is at our core, um, that is why the company started, that is our focus, and single-use products are still single-use. So mm-hmm. even though they're compostable, they're still way better than the alternative, but we're also now working on durable applications. So like if you think in your kitchen, uh, the cloth that you use to clean your dishes, <clears throat> we will be uh, coming out later this year with uh, durable applications so that you can launder the wipe you know, 20 or 30 times, it'll be a heavy weight. Clean your dishes, clean your counters, wash it, reuse it. And at the end of its useful life, it goes into the compost bin uh, off for industrial uh, composting. So we're, we're really working on a number of different initiatives right now. We've got a uh, bio-based antimicrobial treatment for disinfecting, um, a significant number of, of new developments coming. I love it. I, it just excites me to see products on the market, right? We talk about all these materials and all these products that can be made, and it'll be nice to see 10 of them hit the shelves, right? Well, or you know, That's a great point, because uh, back in my early days, and I had my, my booths at these festivals, I had, you know, hemp can make 25,000 different products, and I had the popular mechanics uh, billion-dollar crop thing, <clears throat> and so distracted. You know, there's everything that you can do. And I think what we as an industry have to do is everybody has to focus on their part of it. And so we've focused on non-wovens and we've focused on a small part of non-wovens because to get one thing right and to do it really well is all consuming. You know, there's yeah. 60, 65 of us now in Bass Fiber Tech uh, in our organization and we're all focused on doing one thing and, and it's, it's just a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yes, it takes takes a tribe. Okay, so yep. there's a couple of questions, and this one comes up quite a bit, especially in the non-woven space or in the textile space. How important is traceability? That's a good good question, and that's becoming more and more important. Um, chain of custody. So knowing, like, when you're working with um, uh, the non-woven industry, you, they use a lot of viscose, and viscose comes from trees. And so there's a lot of FSC certification that follows the wood from harvest right through to end product. That doesn't exist yet for uh, hemp. So when we're talking about our supply chain and and knowing that our our farmers are using minimal chemical inputs, no irrigation and that kind of stuff, big brands want to see that confirmation. So it is important. And that's one of the projects that I'm working on right now is introducing a trace into our fibers so that we can guarantee chain of custody throughout the entire uh, 
process. Um, you know, sustainability in our company is it takes many forms, and one of them is that we grow, process, and sell within the same geographic region. That lowers our carbon emissions. It brings us more efficiency in supply chain management, so that we don't have you know complicated supply chains, and it supports the farmers that are around our facility. So in Germany, we're we're purchasing from around our facility, and uh, we want to be able to put the fiber trace uh, so that by the time it gets into a box of wet wipes, you can have a little QR code that says, yeah, this was harvested in this region of, of Holland or in Germany or wherever. Awesome. I've done some really great interviews with people around the traceability side and really the opportunity that hemp has to change the traceability that is such a headache for some of these other commodities. I just... Again, it's it's a huge piece of the textile industry and non-woven industry that consumers aren't as aware of. I mean, unless they're unless it is their priority and they're doing the research, it is there's a lot of greenwashing. Big time, and that, that happens in uh, the non-woven industry. You'll see uh, <clears throat> products out there with bamboo, and anybody knows now that bamboo is just another rayon. It's just yep. and by the time it becomes rayon, you can't tell what the cellulose source is. So. Um, it's, it's, it is greenwashing and there's big, big fines now being handed out, um, in the U S for companies that are, that are doing this type of greenwashing. Good. Good. Well, and really that's what our consumers are wanting, right? The consumer ultimately is pulling and the younger generations are willing to pay with their dollar. They're voting, you know, every time they're paying to understand that it's ethically sourced and ethically made the long-term effects. Yep. Exactly. you had mentioned your investment um, that you guys were able to take on to help expansion. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like, um, sure. what you're anticipating over the next few years for growth and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> raising money is always a challenge. Um, you, you know, as a young entrepreneur, <clears throat> you start with your friends and family rounds and you have to have your, you know, your pitch kind of there but they're your family they love you they're going to give you some money if they if they can um but as soon as you start going out into the broader investment groups whether it's banks or uh family offices or um venture capital groups you really have to be buttoned up uh and to be able to get through the due diligence so when we started um uh, fast fiber tech we were fortunate enough to have uh our our chairman was family office and was a big supporter of ours and helped us get going um, with a, a view towards raising money right from the very start. We um, we took a very active role in making sure we could survive due diligence, that we were putting our patents in place. We were doing everything that we could to be able to show that we had a protected platform that we could grow from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, raising money becomes a full-time job. And uh, when you're trying to get a business going, especially a business that's growing and needs capital for growth, it also, you know, just operating all that other stuff, it is a full-time job. Uh, We've been successful at it and we've been successful at it because we, uh, like I said, we put our patent fence in place. We have a a number of patents that protect fast fiber use in non-wovens. We have our sustainability in place, we have our product certification in place, we have data-driven decisions, we aren't just assuming and we're not just you know faith-based decisions. We're really making sure that we are, are buttoned up. And uh, we've been doing this long enough now that um, 
we kind of know how how to work in in the financial areas and our board has been fantastic uh, our early investors uh, phenomenal so yeah you you have to surround yourself with a good team um, because there's not one person that can do it all well and again this is not new business right this is just a new material entering existing markets and existing supply chains yeah. and so it, it we're not reinventing the wheel, right? We're, we've got to surround ourselves with people that are good. And I, I have to commend both you and some of the other organizations that have really positioned themselves and hired out of industry experts for supply chain development or farming or material science or whatever it is, yeah. um, not just looking within our industry, but really expanding our knowledge base. And so, yeah. well, you know, that's a, that's a great uh, prompt to, uh, to shed some accolades on the team. Yes, because, please. You know, when uh, when we started, <clears throat> there were just four or five of us, mm -hmm. and we would bring in outside consultants, and those consultants prove valuable, and then they start becoming part of the team. And our, our CEO is is a good example of that. Uh, Jim has been with us now for for a number of years, and uh, a non woven executive with a great history understands the market as well as anybody could. And once he got in and saw what we were doing and saw the potential for it, he became a believer in what we were doing and he became our CEO uh, not long ago. And it's just great to start bringing people in from outside the industry who've got a lot of experience. Um, you know, there's a advice out there, I think it was credited to Bill Gates, but it's probably said by many people, <laughs> is surround yourself with people who know more than you do. Mm -hmm. And don't be, don't be afraid. Uh, if somebody's smarter than you or has more experience, bring them in and yes. learn. And uh, you know that's that's a really valuable lesson that I've I've been able to to do over the past uh, few decades. We are the sum of the five people we spend the most time with, right? And so leveling up and. It always yeah. is rewarding to be in a room. And I, I, this happens to me all the time in this industry, especially even during our interviews. I feel like a student. Just keep talking, you know, keep laying it on me, all this information that, you know, being in the industry or interviewing as many people as I have and then sitting down with someone like you that has a team that is, you know, tenfold the experience even that you and I bring together. Um, yeah, and, and it, it's rewarding. It's extremely humbling and extremely rewarding to know that the passion drives so many people in to, to move change and to make change. Yeah. And so it's pretty exciting. Um, there's a couple of questions that I want to address just really quick. Uh, Catalina had a question. How is the relationship between sewing date and quality of fiber? We kind of touched on this in the beginning and there are so many variables that play. There are a lot and it's going to be geography uh, dependent. Right? It's going to be different in northern Alberta than it is in Louisiana. Um, <laughs> from what I understand, um, it comes down to number of hours of sun. And that's a major, major uh, impact on fiber quality. And, and the hours of sunlight will affect your yield, affect your quality. So whether, you know, I've, I've grown vast crops as a winter crop, planting them in November and harvesting them in, in late April. That works really well. Farmers don't care for it so much because it can jeopardize their planting of their summer crop, um, but it, it can be done. So sowing date isn't that important. I think what you have to make sure is that you're growing in a climate that's not too hot. Like, you know, South Carolina in the summer is pretty, pretty damn hot. And mm -hmm. these bass crops don't always do well in that climate. But um, yeah, you've got to pick your, pick your place and monitor the, the sunlight. 
you played it. You just said something so key, right? It's not even so much humidity or, or location as, as it is the time, I, I guess location plays a role, but yeah. a number of hours of daylight, you know, less daylight sure. pushes it right into flower and yeah. flower produces poor quality fiber. <laughs> it it in its tracks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, I would love to collaborate and maybe, you know, work with your team as well and get some feedback on GHA's fiber variety trials this next year, as we are really looking at fiber quality versus herd quality. Um, and then also I'm curious, you know, we get some crops that produce a beautiful yield, right, for our farmers, but the lignin or pectin may be too tough for it. So then decortication becomes a problem. Are you guys seeing that as well? Well, that's something we measure um, yeah. because it has an effect on our, on our yield through mm -hmm. our process because our process mm -hmm. removes all of those. So, uh, uh, yeah, the more lignin and pectin in there, the higher our yield loss, the more expensive our, our uh, processing costs are. So, yeah, that's something we monitor. And, and we'd be very happy to work with you on your growing trials. Yeah. Um, we have the ability to analyze fiber um, to predict where it would fit within the non-woven space. We've got um, labs in the U.S. and in Europe that can do this with us um, and probably provide some pretty good feedback. And we're also running Redding trials uh, right now. Um, for a handheld app, an iOS or Android app. So a farmer can go through their field and check the quality of the fiber. Um, it's, it's obviously based on color, but um, yeah. we're now feeding that AI with as much data as we can to give it, you know, so a, a farmer can go through the field and go, oh, this is about right. This is ready. Yes. Okay. So uh, yeah, I would love to continue this conversation because this is exactly where we need to be. So much of our market right now is still being driven by herd because there's an available market compared yeah. to this need for technology to really expand the textile space or the non-woven space. But I think yeah. that's great. I, sorry to interrupt you there. I think that's yeah. I think that's necessary because when you look at the crop, it is 70% or more herd. Mm -hmm. And so that's the driver. And mm -hmm. that's, I think, what decorticators... Uh, our understanding now is that you're not really in the fiber business, you're in the herd business. You're making so much of it, you've got to have a place to sell it. And the fact that that market has developed nicely and is, is pulling what can be grown right now, it allows uh, the fiber industry to catch up and take that. And, and hopefully for the farmers, they can push that fiber into high value applications uh, where they're going to maybe make a little bit more money per ton. Um, and, and companies like ours can then process it and go into consumer products. Well, and there's there's a major market. I just I don't think that we want to play down the need for herd just into animal bedding if price is yeah. there. You know, I think that that obviously is going to play a big role, especially as the fiber market develops. The ability to really move herd also scales. Yeah. Um, pretty exciting. So, where can listeners, I, our organization, really support you guys? You know, what what is next steps? And if somebody wants to get involved or contact you, how do they do that? Um, well, as far as support right now, um, we're looking for brands to uh, that want to put these products on their shelves. Distributors, we're looking for uh, companies in the natural lifestyle, companies mm -hmm. that are interested in making something maybe we haven't thought of out of a non-woven fabric. We're completely capable of doing that. Um, we are going to be at the NOCO show uh, in March. Looking forward to that. And we will have a booth and we're going to be showcasing the products that we make. We will have price lists saying if you want to buy these canisters, you want to put them on your shelves, this is how much it will cost, and this is who you'll buy them from. Awesome. Um, 
that's probably the best level of support is is starting to go out and ask for these products. Um, our brand name for our fiber is Ciro, uh, which is Latin for to sow or to uh, plant. And it also, uh, I think it's as a verb, it's, it means to entangle or entwine. So it's a perfect name for a hemp non-woven. Yes. So you'll start to see Ciro um, coming out there. And, and if you visit our website, we've got a, a revamped website coming out uh, very shortly. Uh, you'll be able to see all of our marketing and and you know why we think it's a good thing um but yeah i would i would encourage anybody to get in touch with us uh, from a product development perspective we are able now uh, we have thousands of tons of capacity we are starting to book our capacity so we will become constrained at some point this year but yeah. right now we still have uh, capacity available um yeah and so that's 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 the best way to support us Okay, you just have my wheels turning. I feel like we are we are putting product on market. You know, the industry has worked so hard to develop this and now we have the ability to support. And so I'm going to give a shout out and I'd love to add it to our newsletter on a regular basis of you know, where can where can the consumer actually purchase eventually and how do we get consumer involved? And then obviously, like you said, this B2B piece for distribution where we get we get outreach all the time for companies looking for materials and products. And so I'd love to start sending them your way and and support where we can. That'd be great. And you know what? It can happen now because when you when you think of textiles, typically yeah. textiles are working on a 24 month or maybe even longer uh, mm -hmm. product introduction cycle. Non-woven wipes can happen much much faster than that. So uh, you know we have compatibility tests for the fluid that goes onto the fabric to ensure compatibility. We've got uh, the converters who have capacity and are ready to do it. So it can be a pretty fast turn. And then, you know, to be able to advertise uh, that company through your network to say, look, consumers, here it is. It's available. And it's not a high price point. Um, despite our fibers being more expensive, uh, our wipes are very comparable by the time they get onto the shelf as with a polyester wipe. There's a, a small uh, increase in cost, but not much. Okay. You got my, like I said, my wheels are turning. <laughs> I just have context going through my head of people that I want to connect awesome. to. Well, let's, let's put our heads together on that because that's that's yeah. one of my projects right now. Okay. Well, awesome. Awesome. I've really enjoyed your time. I would love to have you back on. I'd love to meet the team and collaborate however we sure. can. Um, but thank you again, everybody else for listening. We're right up on an hour already. It went fast, but Jason, do you have anything else you want to add or any, any shout outs you want to give to anybody? Well, you know what you said, it takes, it takes a tribe and it sure does our, our village of, of, BFTers um, from our commercial officers right through to uh, our executive team and, and quality assurance. You know, everybody here is, is, is focused on the goal and we're all in the same boat. We're rowing in the same direction. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I would just encourage people to get in touch with us, uh, see how they can work with us. Uh, we have job openings coming up, whether that's for lab technicians or um, VP of finance. There's, there's various things in, on our website fastfibertech.com. You'll be able to see those job listings as they come up. We're just, as I said, about to launch our new website. So watch for that. And, uh, you know, we'll be at Expo West, uh, Natural Products Expo West in March. We're going to be at NOCO in March. Uh, so just get in touch and we'll be able to meet and uh, I'll, I can show you what we're doing. Awesome. I would love to, to brainstorm with you, um, these out of industry events that would be utilizing these materials, right? Yeah. Where do we penetrate existing markets? And I say this all the time is, 
as somebody that's in marketing or promotion, how do we put ourselves in front of a room full of buyers? And they're not necessarily always in the hemp industry, right? And so I'd love to brainstorm with you some of I those. I think they're not in the hemp industry. And that's where sure. I've had my success. Um, because, you know, we, we were a publicly traded company in, in, in a previous venture for a, over a decade. And the success we had came from home furnishings. It came from denim. It came from non-hemp groups. Um, right now, you know, think about pet wipes. Think about, you know, for the dog that comes in and needs his foot cleaned. That's a big, big market. And mm -hmm. there's nothing going on in that market right now. If you look at outdoor retailer shows um, for components, uh, non-woven components into footwear or into athletic wear, these are areas that we are exploring and we'd love to work with uh, your listeners. Well, we need to get we need to get to the outdoor retailer show was just here in Salt Lake. That yeah. great big show it was moved to Colorado and it's back here. And so I walked that floor, of course, daydreaming about all the hemp companies being there because yeah. <laughs> we was like, well, hemp fits there, hemp fits there, hemp fits there. So it's a good show. It's awesome, awesome, yeah. awesome. Well, Jason, I've really enjoyed your time. Please don't hesitate to reach out if there's anything I can do for you. I'd love to get something scheduled so we can talk about some some of these topics offline, but yeah. Um, yeah, have your team reach out anytime. Everybody else that's listening, we've got another great interview, same time, 10 a.m. tomorrow, 10 mountain time tomorrow. Um, set your reminder on LinkedIn or YouTube so that you know when we go live, but tomorrow we'll be talking about the construction and building industry and developing market in California. So a little bit different perspective, definitely focused on the herd market um, more than the fiber market. So it'll be a nice compliment. But Jason, again, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody else, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. See you later. Bye.